This is the Rounds Table. Hi, Rounds Table listeners. We would like to take a minute to ask for your help. We're doing a study to try to understand why people listen to medical podcasts. We would love to interview you. This would take no more than about 20 to 30 minutes of your time, which would be compensated with an Amazon gift card. How about that? We've already interviewed quite a few people, and we just need to do a few more interviews to complete the study. We are especially looking for people who live outside of Toronto or people who practice in non-academic settings. If you are interested, please contact us via email or Twitter. I can be reached at K-I-E-R-A-N-Q-U-I-N-N at gmail.com or our good old host Amol Verma, A-M-O-L dot A dot Verma, V-E-R-M-A at gmail.com or You can tweet at us at Rounds Table, and we'll get in contact with you. We would really appreciate it, and thanks so much for your help. Well, I'm joined here today by our good old friend, Paxton Back, a resident and fellow in general internal medicine at the University of British Columbia. Paxton, welcome back to the show. Uh, Thanks, Kieran. Glad to be back. Paxton, why don't we get right into it? Introduce your article for our listeners, please. Sure. Thanks, Kieran. So the article that I wanted to talk about today is one that was published in the New England Journal um, in December. It's entitled Genetic Risk, Adherence to a Healthy Lifestyle and Coronary Disease. This is an article. The primary author is uh, Amit Kira, and the paper comes out of Mass Gen Hospital from the Center of Human Genetic Research and Cardiology Division. The Center of Human Genetic Research. So what is at the center of this human genetic research, the bottom line for the article? So bottom line for this study, this was a very large study that was using a composite uh, genetic and clinical data from four different prospective cohorts. In this study, in a population of over 55,000 people that were analyzed, they found unsurprisingly that both genetics as well as lifestyle are independently associated with uh, increased cardiovascular risk. More importantly, they showed that a healthy lifestyle reduces risk substantially for people at all levels of genetic risk, and uh, it can do so by up to nearly 50%. That's a lot of genes. Tell me, uh, Paxson, why did you choose this article? What's the uh, importance of it in the context of things? So I chose this article, I guess, for two reasons. So the the first is a problem that I see not infrequently on the wards where you admit a 45-year-old male who has no real clear cardiovascular risk factors with his first NSTEMI and he wants to know why, why this has happened to him. And at least I feel handcuffed by this poor guy's genetics. He has drawn a short straw and that can be fairly discouraging. To me, this trial gives me hope that I should still counsel this gentleman on the same things that I would anyone else and that in improving his lifestyle, in in reaching what they've termed here a quote-unquote healthy lifestyle, that it still uh, can have a significant effect on reducing the cardiovascular risk and all is not lost. Yeah, I think uh, definitely I feel hopeless when you see patients who just have bad things happen to them and you think, man, they just got bad genes in there and there's not much we can do about it. And I was uh, quite impressed with this article in the the message of hope, as you said, that, you know what, there is stuff that we can do about it. It's hard work, but it's possible. Yeah. And the, I mean, the second thing here that I, I really appealed to me about this article was um, what they call a polygenic risk scoring system and their actual use of genetics to really start refining our ability to identify high-risk patients. Next phase of personalized medicine. So, Paxton, tell me what was the design of the study and where did it take place? 
So as I mentioned, um, this study was a composite of multiple prospective trials that have been running for, for many years. So they included three prospective observational cohorts as, as well as a single cross-sectional study. Three out of four of these groups were out of the U.S. in multiple centers across the United States. And one of them was a cohort that's based out of Malmo, Sweden. And so who are the patients that came from these different centers? So each of these prospective cohorts is being run for, for different reasons. There's a fairly diverse group, with the exception that they are primarily white Caucasian. Three out of four of these cohorts are almost exclusively Caucasian. They're middle-aged, sort of in their 50s, but ranging from their 40s to their 80s. And most of them have some risk factors for cardiovascular disease, but generally speaking, they're not particularly advanced. They don't have any high-risk features. Okay. It's a genetic study. They want to include everybody. There's not much uh, exclusion as far as I can see. Is that, uh, is that fair? Each trial does, does have certain you know, idiosyncrasies to their inclusion and exclusion criteria, but generally speaking, it's a fairly broad population. Population-based study. Okay. What was sort of the primary question of the study? What, was, what were the interventions or things that they were looking at in this genetics study? There's sort of two aspects to this trial that then they're looking at the interactions between both of them. So the first thing that they're looking at was trying to quantify a patient's genetic risk. I've always kind of been of the mind that we're better at gathering uh, genetic data these days than we are of actually knowing what to do with it. And I think we're now reaching a point here where we're starting to see us be able to really like make some clinical sense of that information. That's what we're seeing illustrated in this trial. They um, developed a scoring system based on 50 known uh, genetic polymorphisms that have been shown to have an association with increased cardiovascular risk. So in taking these 50 alleles, they are able to assign sort of relative risks to each one of them and combine them together to form a genetic predictor of somebody's overall cardiovascular risk. So they were able to calculate their 10-year risk based on this polygenic score. Wardrobe of genes. Yeah, and so what did they then do with that information? First thing they wanted to do is just validate that this scoring system. But the second thing that they looked at was how different uh, healthy lifestyle factors impact somebody's genetic risk as defined by this score. So they took four uh, healthy lifestyle factors as identified a priori by lifestyle factors taken from the, a, the American Heart Association's recommendations. Uh, and those were uh, the absence of current smoking, the absence of obesity or a BMI of less than 30, physical activity at least once weekly, so not really rigorous levels of activity, as well as a self-reported healthy diet. So we risk stratify people based on this genetic profile, and then we also look at their four healthy lifestyle factors, put it all together. What did they measure as their primary outcomes with this interaction between these two arms? So they're looking for sort of that nature versus nurture question and using a different way of, of going after it. What they used as their primary outcome was, was a composite. Um, they used a composite of cardiovascular risk, which included MI, um, cardiovascular death, or revascularization. And they used a Cox regression to predict 10-year event rates. In one of the cohorts, they did have some additional data. And in that cohort, they were able to use a, a secondary outcome of actual scoring of their coronary artery calcification. Okay. A fairly straightforward cardiovascular outcome uh, study. What did they find? So quite interesting. So as I mentioned, this was a very large population. Um, they t included a total of 55,685 participants, so a fairly robust amount of data. The first thing that they demonstrated, which was quite cool, is that these polygenic risk scores really did a good job of approximating risk. 
they separated their polygenic risk score into, into quintiles, and so into fifths, and each of those fifths had a fairly normal distribution, of a bell curve of events, but there was a clear risk gradient that was noted across all of those quintiles. So as your quote-unquote genetic risk went up by the scoring system they used, uh, in actual fact, their 10-year risk was also increasing. And so how did that compare between the highest quintile and the lowest quintile? In the highest quintile, as by the genetic risk, there is actually 91% higher rates of coronary events than compared to the lowest quintile. So a very significant increased risk. That's interesting in and of itself that we can take somebody's genes and really get at an overall cardiovascular risk score just from that. There's powerful information there alone. To me, I, I wonder if we're seeing like the future Framingham, if this is what we're going to be using. How do they compare these polygenic risk scores to some of the other single traditional things that we look at as far as risk for cardiovascular disease, like family history or LDL levels? How did that compare with those? Uh, that's a great question. So they did look at their uh, polygenic risk score compared to, uh, as you mentioned, the more conventional risk factors, and uh, particularly a self-reported family history. And this provided a better snapshot of somebody's risks than their own reported family history. In terms of other risk factors, they did note that LDL levels did climb per quintile, but again, it was, it was not as uh, predictive as their score was. What about these protective factors or the healthy lifestyle uh, variables that they were talking about? Mm -hmm. So each one of those was associated independently with um, decreased risk. So the most influential of those risk factors was the lack of smoking, which was associated with uh, nearly half as much rates. 0.56 was their risk ratio. The lack of obesity was a 0.66 risk reduction. Physical activity was 0.88 and uh, a self-reported healthy diet was 0.91. So each of those was uh, independently associated with less risk. And I think that sort of follows what we understand about cardiovascular risk in that smoking appears to be one of the worst possible things that you can do to your heart. And uh, not surprisingly, then it had one of the best uh, or largest overall reductions in risk for those who didn't smoke. Mm -hmm. Yet another study here that really gives me another tool to encourage my patients to reevaluate their cigarette smoking. What they did following looking at each of those factors individually was assemble them into what they call a favorable lifestyle, uh, intermediate lifestyle, or an unfavorable lifestyle. So they termed favorable lifestyle achieving three out of four of those factors, which again, is not something that I think is unrealistic for a patient to target. In their favorable lifestyle group, they found that three out of four of those factors was in fact associated with 45% lower relative risk in uh, low-risk patients, 47% lower risk in the intermediate-risk patients, and 46% lower relative risk in the high-risk patients. So that is encouraging for me because sometimes you get this sense with these patients at high genetic risk that there's you know, determinism at work and nothing that they can do um, is going to change that. And I think it's important for me to see that the findings are consistent, right, between the favorable lifestyle and the unfavorable lifestyle. Like you see a relatively equal reduction in risk regardless of their underlying genetic profiles. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, it's nice to see that consistency. And in fact, when they took that one cohort that I mentioned that had calcification scores, they again saw a very similar pattern. So a, a decreased score was associated with their healthy lifestyle across all genetic risks. So uh, Paxson, you know, Studies are always made to look better than they sometimes are by reporting relative risk, and certainly that makes for a good headline in the news to the lay public. But let's talk about absolute risk differences. What, what did they find there? In this particular paper, the uh, absolute risk 
reductions varies fairly significantly based on what the event rates were like in, in each individual cohort. But for example, like in one of the cohorts, patients who were at high risk by their genetics and lived a favorable lifestyle, their absolute risk at 10 years was 5.1%, whereas those living an unfavorable lifestyle had a risk of 10.7%, so nearly double. Uh, in the second cohort, a favorable lifestyle was associated with a 2% absolute risk of uh, composite outcome, and an unfavorable was associated with 4.6%, so again, double. And, and in a third cohort, the favorable lifestyle was associated with a 5.3% risk, and unfavorable was 8.2% risk. So again, in that range of nearly a 50% reduction. As you were mentioning earlier, not only is this a quite a significant difference, but there's consistency between the cohorts, which really gives me some faith in this. Yeah, and so, you know, I guess one other way to think about it uh, you know, somewhere between 20 and 50 people on a population level, they adopt a healthy lifestyle. That's sort of your number needed to treat to significantly reduce your risk overall of a cardiovascular outcome. What about any, you know, thoughts or observations you had? Anything that caught your eye beyond what we've talked about so far? The bottom line here is that is that they're talking about what we know are risk factors for cardiovascular disease and protective factors for cardiovascular disease. So, I don't know that I'm surprised by the results here, but I am encouraged by them. What I was surprised by, though, was the magnitude and the consistency, which, you know, as I mentioned before, was pretty impressive. Another small point to make is that they did uh, look at their composite outcome and ask the question whether this inclusion of revascularization may be an opportunity for some bias because revascularization ends up being a, a determination by a physician. So they redid all their analysis as well with the composite outcome excluding revascularization. So just looking at MI rates and cardiovascular death, and they saw very similar endpoints. I guess one of my questions is the somewhat clinical applicability of this study. I mean, we won't be able to know how to stratify somebody's baseline risk based on their genetics, at least in Canada in the present day and age. Um, how, how do you see this playing out? As far as the risk calculator goes, we're obviously not in a position to be using that now. And I think it will be some time before I think that becomes a clinical tool that we use on a day-to-day -day basis. But the beauty of this paper is that that doesn't really matter because the change that they're seeing is consistent across all gradients. So whether you're high risk or low risk, these are important changes to make in your lifestyle that, that will come with a measurable benefit. So I think that's a perfect segue into just what do you think the really the main takeaway point is here for our listeners? The takeaway here is that in terms of nature versus nurture, it really comes down to nature and nurture. We know that genetics do predict cardiac risk, and we're getting to a point where we can actually envision using that as a clinical tool. But regardless of your genetics, a healthy lifestyle, as defined here by not smoking, some regular exercise, a reasonable diet, and, and not being obese, can decrease your predetermined genetic risk of cardiovascular events by as much as 50%. And that's meaningful. Well, thank you, Paxson. That's a very fascinating study, I think. And overall, a couple important messages and hope for the future, as well as personalized genetic medicine and cardiovascular medicine. I'm going to take us now through the trial that I chose for this week, and this was published in uh, late November in New England Journal of Medicine by Gibson et al., and it's really looking at triple therapy, which means that in patients with coronary artery disease and atrial fibrillation, 
we're looking at the best strategy to treat these patients for stroke reduction and reduction of ACS and instant thromboses. I'm so glad you chose this paper, Kieran, because this is a question that comes up so often on the wards. I think anticoagulation is, on the surface, seems like a fairly straightforward thing, but uh, as you well know, there is no end of nuances to it and of discussion in patients like this where they have multiple indications for different forms of anticoagulation. So I, I read this with great interest. Well, I read it with great interest too, and I was glad I chose it until I started to unpack it for the show. And my, my, is it a complicated moving parts kind of study. But I will give you the bottom line nonetheless. This was a randomized trial of three different strategies for anticoagulation and antiplatelet therapy in 2,200 patients with atrial fibrillation who had PCI. The goal was to minimize bleeding. Now, the results are a little bit complicated, but really the bottom line is that the study showed that two modified strategies had lower rates of bleeding than conventional treatment with warfarin plus dual antiplatelet therapy. Those strategies were low-dose rivaroxaban, 15 milligrams once daily, plus single antiplatelet therapy with clopidogrel for 12 months, or very low-dose rivaroxaban, 2.5 milligrams BID, plus dual antiplatelet therapy, compared to warfarin plus dual antiplatelet therapy. Tell me from a personal perspective why you chose this article and what it means to you. Well, as you already alluded to, this trial addresses the long-standing concept of this idea of triple therapy for patients with coexisting AFib and recent PCI. And this is like a thorn in the side of many physicians who have to make these decisions about how to best treat their patients in this situation. We know that in patients who have AFib and undergo percutaneous coronary intervention, PCI, with a placement of stents, that's about 5 to 8% of people with coronary artery disease. Standard anticoagulation with the vitamin K agonist like morphine plus dual antiplatelet therapy, including clopidogrel and aspirin or another P2I inhibitor, reduces the overall risk of thrombosis and stroke, but it really, really, really increases the risk of bleeding. And you're trying to balance the risk of stent thrombosis with ischemic stroke and the risk of bleeding. You know, that's about 2.2% within the first month and up to 12% within the first year of treatment as far as your bleeding risk. So major, major complications and a very difficult decision. Mm -hmm. Yeah, there's a lot of layers to that discussion. So tell me then, as far as this particular study goes, give me the, the details of it. Where, where was this study done and, and tell me about the design. This was an international multi-center randomized open-label trial, and I think it has to be done that way because to, in order to get the patient numbers to be able to make meaningful comparisons, and it was conducted between 2013 and 2015. Now, I think it's important to point out that it was industry-sponsored by Janssen Scientific Affairs and Bayer Pharmaceuticals, who are the makers and marketers of Rivaroxaban, otherwise known as Xeralto. You know, the doses that they used in this trial are kind of strange because they don't use actual standard dosing of rivaroxaban that we would use for primary stroke prevention. So there's a bit of an asterisk already from the get-go. Um, so talk to me about the, uh, the patients included in this study then. So it was any adult with atrial fibrillation, whether it was proxysmal, persistent, or permanent. Of course, it's non-valvular atrial fibrillation, the indications for rivaroxaban. And they had to have just undergone PCI with stent placement. People who were excluded from this trial, anybody who had had a history of stroke or TIA, clinically significant gastrointestinal bleeding within the last year before they were randomized, uh, really poor uh, kidney function with a creatinine clearance of less than 30 mils per minute, 
or an anemia of unknown cause that was severe enough to have a hemoglobin concentration of less than 10 grams per deciliter, or really any other major condition known to cause or increase the risk of bleeding. Yep, that sounds totally fair. And as you mentioned, this is a fairly complicated trial. So exactly how did they structure it? Really, the primary question was, what is the safety of anticoagulation with rivaroxaban plus either one or two antiplatelet agents in patients with AFib and PCI? So they took the patients that I mentioned above and they randomized them in a one-to-one-to-one ratio to one of the three strategies of antiplatelets and anticoagulation. Before the randomization, the investigator pre-specified the intended duration of dual antiplatelet therapy for that patient. Now, that means that the clinician is making a subjective decision about how long a patient should be on dual antiplatelet therapy, but the alternative way to look at it would be to say, well, that's a practical decision and one that clinicians are going to make. So I think that's a, a fair framing uh, way to put it in it. If you look at anticoagulation guidelines for stents in different countries around the world, they do vary. So it would be hard to do this in, in a multinational trial without having some variety there. Yeah. And so the three strategies were low-dose rivaroxaban, that's 15 milligrams once a day, or if they had moderate renal impairment, that's dose reduced to 10 milligrams once a day, plus a P2Y12 inhibitor, right? clopidogrel, ticagrelor, prasugrel, uh, and that was for 12 months. The other second strategy was very low-dose rivaroxaban, 2.5 milligrams twice daily, plus dual antiplatelet therapy for 1, 6, or 12 months, and participants who received the treatment for 1 or 6 months then received rivaroxaban at a dose of 15 milligrams once daily, or dose reduced for creatinine clearance, plus a single antiplatelet therapy with aspirin for the remainder of the 12-month period so that everybody in the end is going to get treated for 12 months. It just depends on the strategy that they're going to get treated with. And then the last group was what we would call standard therapy with dose-adjusted warfarin, you know, maintaining an INR between 2 and 3, plus dual antiplatelet therapy for 1, 6, or 12 months, and then, of course, receiving warfarin and aspirin for the remaining months all that being said, what were they looking at in terms of primary outcomes here? Yes, they really wanted to say it was a safety outcome to measure what is the rate of clinically significant bleeding. And that was a composite of major bleeding or minor bleeding or what they called bleeding requiring medical attention. That time point was from the first administration of the trial drug until two days after the trial drugs were discontinued through 12 months of therapy. What they looked at was the incidence of each component of that primary safety endpoint, those different types of bleeding, uh, as well as the following efficacy endpoints. So they looked at the occurrence of major adverse cardiovascular events, composite of death from cardiovascular causes, myocardial infarction, or stroke, and each component of those major adverse cardiovascular events as an endpoint, as well as stent thrombosis. Uh, a lot of work to be done by their statisticians here. So uh, what did they end up finding then? The absolute rates of clinically significant bleeding were lower in the two groups receiving rivaroxaban than in the group receiving standard therapy, the warfarin and the aspirin, uh, with the dual antiplatelet therapy for some time. And that was about 8 to 10% reduction. So, you know, in group 1, the 15 milligram rivaroxaban group, about 17%. In group 2, very lower dose rivaroxaban, 18%. And in the warfarin group, about 27%. 
So that corresponded to a number needed to harm of 10 to take warfarin versus the other two strategies as far as major bleeding. All right. So break that down then. What is actually happening with these patients? Yeah. So if you kind of look at it on a time analysis, the rates begin to differ within about the first 30 days. But the overall significance as far as risk is concerned occurs between the one and six month mark. And that's driven mainly by bleeding requiring medical attention, which is defined as medical treatment, surgical treatment, or laboratory evaluation, but not meeting criteria for major or minor bleeding event. And then, you know, one of the common questions that people might ask is, well, how reflective of real practice is this? How much time did these patients on warfarin spend in a therapeutic INR? And they were in range about 65% of the time. And I think that's typically what you, what I would see in practice. Yeah, I think that's probably about, about the norm. And then overall, you know, they looked at the rates of deaths from cardiovascular causes, MI and stroke. And those are similar between the groups. It was about 5 to 6% uh, overall event rate across the three groups. If you look at what you would see in practice overall or what's published in the literature, that's about a fair event rate that is reflective of the real world. Okay. They break down the, the, their cardiovascular endpoint into each of its subsets. I'm curious about the bleeding, though. What about severe bleeds? Yeah, I think that's a fair question, uh, Paxson. So, uh, overall, there wasn't any differences between the rates of major bleeding, and we're seeing it on the order of about 2 to 3% across the board between the three groups. You know, I think that's probably a fair uh, estimate uh, about overall rates of bleeding in, inside a year for these patients. Okay, so you have to wonder if it really is just the, the minor bleeds that are increasing or maybe if they're just not powered to, to see a difference in, in event rates that are smaller. Yeah, and, and, you know, to be fair, you're seeing that 2% is really only representing about 15 to 20 patients in each group. And I think you're absolutely correct. Some of these sort of subgroup and secondary things that they're doing have really, really small numbers of patients in each, and, and so we should be careful about how we interpret those differences or lack of differences. Okay. So, tell me then about sort of your overall thoughts in this paper. Anything you wanted to highlight or anything you thought was particularly interesting or noteworthy? The most important thing to recognize is that this trial is not a simple comparison across any individual group. So, I think that makes it difficult to draw any robust conclusions other than to just say, the strategies that they tried have some differences between them, but what that means overall for the real world of medicine and what we might do to treat these patients is limited in this study. Yeah, that was sort of my takeaway here is it was all, it all made sense and, and added up, but these are unusual combinations that they're describing that I'm not quite sure if and when to use these. If we were going to try and incorporate this trial into our practice, who is the patient that we would uh, make these sort of changes in? Yeah, and this is the patient you and I recognize, and these are the patients that we're making these decisions about, uh, which is a 70-year-old gentleman who has underlying hypertension and dyslipidemia who undergoes elective PCI. They use a drug-eluting stent. You know, in modern age, we don't see a lot of bare metal stents being used, although that may change in the future. Um, and their CHAD score overall was 2, which is typically, you know, somewhere between 2 and 4 are the patients that you see as far as their CHAD score. And they were on pretty much optimal medical therapy. I don't think you can fault patients in this trial for not being on optimal medical therapy. Okay, so that sounds like a patient that we see uh, quite often. What is your takeaway from this paper? Like, what are you what are you going to apply from this paper to your patient population? You know, this study confirms that if you have a lower dose of anticoagulation or fewer antiplatelets, you have a lower bleeding risk. Duh! I don't think anybody would have questioned that. Unfortunately. 
in order to be able to conduct a trial that could effectively show differences between the three strategies, you would need over 14,000 patients who had AFib and a recent PCI. And I just don't think that we're going to be able to do that in the foreseeable future because we just don't have that many patients even across the world. The main learning points that I would take away from this is that, as we know, full-dose triple therapy with warfarin dual antiplatelet therapy is associated with a very significant bleeding risk. And likely the best path forward for patients with AFib and recent PCI is to put them on a dose-adjusted DOAC and clopidogrel for 12 months or a dose-adjusted DOAC uh, with dual antiplatelet therapy for three to six months and then a single DOAC and clopidogrel for 12 months. And then after a year, you're probably safe to put them on a direct oral anticoagulant by itself. Mm-hmm. For our Canadian listeners and those who know the Canadian Cardiovascular Society recommendations around triple therapy, which just came out in the Canadian Cardiovascular Society guidelines, the recommendation is effectively this. If your patient is over the age of 65 and has a CHAD score of one or higher, you would put that patient on triple therapy with a DOAC and dual antiplatelet therapy for up to six months, and then a DOAC and a single antiplatelet therapy to the 12-month mark, and then a single DOAC following that. So it looks like the world is coming into alignment about what to do about these patients. Yikes. So this has not made anticoagulation any simpler. No, not at all. But at least we have some more evidence to um, back up our decisions and the recommendations that we make for our patients. Yeah, and I, I do get the, the sense that this is hopefully uh, the first in a series of trials that, that may help to provide a bit more clarity in, in this area. Mm-hmm. Maybe it's the first step that they can do a second one later. Well, thank you, Paxton. Um, it's always fun recording with you, and you know I really enjoy the articles that we cover together. Uh, let's move on to my favorite part of the show. It's the good stuff segment where we're talking about what we are reading about. Paxton, what is catching your eye this week? Kieran, if you've ever seen the show Homeland before. I do. I love that show. Yeah, it's, yeah, it's a, it's a great show. And, and if you remember back in the first or second season, there was, a, there was a, a scene where they actually successfully assassinated the vice president by hacking his pacemaker and stopping his heart. My heart was racing at that scene. Yeah, it's. It, I mean, it seemed a little bit a little bit absurd at the time, but uh, it turns out uh, I found out later that Dick Cheney actually, uh, many many years before this TV show ever aired, uh, had the wireless part of his pacemaker switched off um, because there was this theoretical ability to go in and do that, which does seem a little far fetched until perhaps more recently. So I was reading an article discussing a safety communication from the FDA on um, St. Jude's devices. Now I'm not sure if you've been in any of the EP clinics lately, um, but if you're not aware, one of St. Jude's new uh, ICDs is under advisory for battery issues right now. Unfortunately, their machine has a bad habit of uh, shorting out and draining the battery uh, over, over a matter of hours. Um, it's not quite as bad as Samsung's issue, not having exploding ICDs, but they do drain quite abruptly and unpredictably. Because of that, we've actually been sending people home with Merlin transmitters, they're called, and these these are little wireless receivers that sit on their bed and communicate with their pacemaker overnight to monitor it for any signs of battery failure. 
Well, the FDA puts out a safety communication today that highlights what they call cybersecurity vulnerabilities associated with the St. Jude's medical radio frequency devices and their corresponding transmitters. So St. Jude's is actually sending out software updates that hopefully prevent or reduce the risk of people being able to actually hack into their Merlin transmitters and wirelessly affect people's pacemakers as they sleep. Bioclinical terrorism. Sweet Jude, that sounds terrifying. Yeah, yeah. I'm going to talk about something that caught my attention. I love reading the BMJ Christmas series uh, that comes out every year where they, they publish real studies, but they're sort of lighthearted in a sense. And I thought it kind of went with lifestyle theme that we were going to talk about today uh, based on your article. So, it's entitled Pokemon Go. No, really. I mean, get up and go. So, a recent study in the BMJ estimated the effect of playing Pokemon Go on the number of steps taken daily up to six weeks after installation of the game. For those of you who are not familiar with Pokemon Go, it is a social phenomenon that is a game in which it augments a user's reality. So, you walk around your real life and it integrates on your Google Maps and then they have these little Pokemon characters in your reality on your video camera on your phone and you have to try to go catch them and I'm not actually sure what you do with them when you catch them but anyways that's the whole point of the game. So participants uh, who played Pokemon Go walked on average about 4300 steps each day in the four weeks before installation of the game. And then after they installed the game, they walked in a th another 1,000 steps per day. So about 5,300 steps after uh, installation. Unbelievable. Who, not, who knew that Pokemon could be good for your cardiovascular health? Unfortunately, this didn't uh, last. And after six weeks, it disappeared. I guess the users just got bored of the game and decided to stop. Well, Paxson, a pleasure as always. Thanks for joining us. And we look forward to having you back soon. Absolutely. It's been fun, Kieran. I'll be back. The Rounds Table is hosted online by Healthy Debate. You can find us at healthydebate.ca slash theroundstable, follow us on Twitter at roundstable, or find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash roundstablepodcast. Thanks for joining us this week. Who knows what the wonderful world of medicine holds for next week?